You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here are your hosts, Carl Stebbings and Matt Smith. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> oh, really? I know. Well, it is Christmas time. <laughs> it is Christmas time. I know, it is Christmas. So we're back then for episode number 92 of this show. Yeah. It's the Christmas period and we're not live. We're not. We're not live. No, no, no. We're, this, we're, this, I'm afraid to say, is, is a pre-record. So it's not yeah. a live. It's not a live one. But there's a good reason for that. Because there hopefully is. we're all eating turkey and goodness knows. What I know. I know. So, so, so what? So what are you doing on Christmas? So, uh, so I, I should say we're asking that because obviously it's actually the 12th of, Dece- of December when we're actually recording these segments. So, yeah, uh, I know. So yes. Yeah, so so Christmas the, Day, I've got a f- I've got a house full. Unfortunately, everybody coming to you. Everyone's coming to here Lovely. because because we brought a bigger house early this year. Did you? Everyone, so silly you. Everyone says. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to come to your house for a change. Oh, that's nice. So all the family are here. We've got um, we've got uh, my uh, brother-in-law and his wife, right. and uh, they're three babies. Oh dear, uh, three. Oh. And uh, we've got um, my mother and father-in-law. Right, good. Yes. And we've also got uh, my wife's auntie and uncle as well. They're right. here as well for Gosh. for festivities. I presume they're just coming for like I mean, they're not staying, just for the day. Oh, just for the day. Saying, yeah, just for the day. <laughs> So they're here. They're here to to see us, and yes. uh, yeah, and we're, we're we're obviously we're going to have a, an awesome time and, and eat far too much. Good, good. Well, that's, so, that, that sounds like Christmas. So, yeah. what what are you and the lovely mummy doing? Right. Well, myself and mother, uh, we're basically uh, well, it's just me and mum really. Me, mum, Alfie, and the cat. Mima, that's oh, about Mima. it. Uh, I'm cooking Christmas dinner. Are you? I know it's a bit scary, isn't it? And I, are I, you doing the traditional? No, no, no. Totally. no we, we don't do traditional. No. Cool. Well, because it's only me and Mum. You see, the decision is that it's whatever we want to have. Cotton chips? Yeah, no, not quite. No, because no. the fish and chip shop's not open, okay. and, and you can't you can't do it at home as, <laughs> as well. Let's let, let's be honest. So uh, basically, what's happening is uh, we, it's going to be, and I'm afraid I've nicked this from the lovely Chan from the restaurant down the road, uh, and it's going to be basically a big large tomato uh, stuffed with sort of sausage meat uh, with a nice sort of chilli dressing. That's going to be our starter. For Maine, we are going to have a rather delightful um, uh, beef wellington uh, with roast potatoes. Nom, nom, nom. Indeed, uh, but with the roast potatoes done in goose fat and all. You know, so the traditional elements. And Brussels sprouts, obviously, because that's the law. And, uh, and then uh, dessert will basically be um, a chocolate orange mousse. Mm. Uh, indeed, uh, and then obviously cheese and biscuits and coffee and, and and gins and tonics. We're having a gin and tonic party over Christmas. Me and Mum, we've decided. I'm not a gin man. Oh, I am a gin man. Yeah, no, I like I like my gin. But uh, yeah, that's that, that that that's that's what we're doing, and uh, just basically slobbing out and watching all the TV all the TV programs. Of course, very exciting for me. The very last episode of Downton Abbey is on. Snorton Abbey. Uh, indeed. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for any Downton Abbey listeners. Indeed, oh, yeah. absolutely. Oh. Yes, you should be ashamed of yourself. But yeah. uh, anyway, enough of this waffle. It's time. Yeah, we have got uh, the first uh, part of the well of the massive interview I took mm, yeah. at the part Malta. One. Oh yeah, is Malta Aviation Museum. And uh, so, so, what's the what's the background to this? Uh, whereabouts in Malta is it? So, the Malta Aviation Museum is based on the uh, what was the Takali Airfield. Mm. Um, in uh, Malta, which is kind of uh, it's kind of central on the island, right? And uh, it's a lovely place. There's lots of old Nissan huts, mm. you know, the old-fashioned tin Nissan huts from uh, when the, the uh, during the Second World War. Yeah. And there's also a couple of new, rather new, large, big hangars. Okay. Um, on the site uh, with with uh, with loads of aircraft in it. I mean, bear in mind, Malta is a very very small island, mm. a very yeah. small island indeed. 
and um, in in Europe, and it's it's becoming a very popular destination for yeah. people around Europe now, and across the, in the US as well. A lot of well, American me and Mum had a holiday there. there not that long ago, and mm. we both fell in love with the island. It's it, it's it's a really lovely place. But uh, so, so, what's the background to the museum then? How long has it been open? So the museum, oh, you're going to have to listen to the uh, to the interview okay. for that because oh, well, you'll get the information <laughs> there. But uh, no, it, it's it, there's a huge amount of aircraft there, and yeah. a lot of the aircraft that are there are um, they're kind of they're kind of in the process of being restored. So when you walk around the museum, you get to see a lot of aircraft that um, are, are kind of in, in the phase of being stripped restored. down and yeah. restored. Oh, but how, there are, how fascinating. There are a lot of, um, there are just a lot of, uh, of aircraft there wide range of aircraft. There's even some commercial like passenger aircraft yeah. there, but just the nose sections of wow. um, the, 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 you know, the, the museum or the aircraft itself. But um, it costs a very little to get in. Wow. Um, it's kind of it's kind of one of those places where you need at least a good half day to right. go around. Okay. You know, it, it's not a massive museum, mm. but there's a hell of a lot to see there. Good. You know, in yeah. in the actual place wow. itself, it's somewhere where so, you you need to go. So, if you are going anywhere near the island of Malta, then it does sound like that this is a must must see. Uh, it's time then to bring you part of the Malta, the first part of the Malta Aviation Museum. Here we go. Okay, so I've been very lucky then to come to the Malta Aviation Museum at Tikali on the island of Malta. And I'm here with Ray Polidano. Hello, Ray. Hey, good morning. And uh, welcome welcome on to the Plane Talking UK podcast, Ray. It's uh, been uh, very nice to come and see you here today. Thanks, Carlos. Thanks. Uh, it's been nice to welcome you in the museum and be able to show you around. So, Ray, a bit of history then about the museum. How did things start uh, at the museum? When did it all start here? Well, back, way back in '93, we started restoring the Spitfire. We're um, basically um, watching at the moment. It was uh, started in my garage at home, and then it grew bigger and bigger. So we had to move to bigger premises. And then finally, we got given uh, a bit of Romney huts here, here on Taali, on the sort of promise that once we finish the Spitfire, we'll give it back. But when we did finish the Spitfire in 1995, it was 50th anniversary of the air of the uh, Victory Day in, in Europe. Um, we took the Spitfire to Valletta um, and showed it to the politicians, sort of. <laughs> so they were impressed, and they let us have the rest of the Romney hut. And then from one Romney hut, it began, we went to the next one, and then we were given the land, uh, which we are occupying in a moment. And we, uh, in 2005, we built this hangar, the Air Battle of Malta Memorial hangar. And then in 13, we built the uh, the main exhibition hangar, which houses the 50s jets and other stuff. Excellent. So we're standing then in this hangar at the moment, in the memorial hangar, then next to the Mary Rose, the Spitfire here. Is this a flying? Does this 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 run this particular? No, no. This was um, a sort of transition learning curve. From I was actually building uh, radio control balsa wood models, and and then suddenly found myself building a full size Spitfire. Of, um, it was thanks to the help of uh, Mike Eastman from uh, Manchester in the UK. He, he offered to come to Malta and spend a couple of months with us, and he sort of started the rebuilding process. Um, that's how it started. Wow, I, t- I tell you, looking at the model now, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it looks like it's ready to fly now, like a good taxi. And, uh... yeah, it looks like. In <laughs> <laughs> um, actual fact, the... the uh, Interesting thing about it is not just a Spitfire. It's a Spitfire that's got a lot of pedigree in it. Uh, it first started flying in, in January of '43 for Operation Torch, and it was flown by Ronald Berry, who was the wing commander of 322 Wing. 
Um, and then um, once Operation Torch was over, it uh, came over here on Malta to Ta'ali for the invasion of Sicily. And it actually shot down the measures, met and damaged another one during the initial days of the invasion of Sicily. And, and then once Sicily was taken, it was based on Sicily, and then went over to southern Italy and kept on flying right to the end of the war in, in May of 45 in, in Italy. And then it only returned after the war ended, joined 73 Squadron, and uh, was eventually damaged in a gale, uh, but not damaged enough to sort of uh, be a total write-off, but it was good enough to be given to the scouts, the local air scouts. So that is basically why it, it uh, um, exists nowadays. Well, I must say, is there any more work you're doing to this, and is it uh, a finished project? Um, no, it's a, it's a finished project. Obviously, it would um, need some uh, attention once in a while. The moment we're going to do the new upholstery for the seat, in fact. <laughs> but, but it's basically finished. Oh, wow, it looks fantastic. So we've moved round then to, um, to the next exhibit here. Um, for those of you listening as the audio podcast, the pictures will be with the, uh, with the show notes for this show. So what's this aircraft here, Ray? Well, this is a Tiger Mott. Um, it's the museum's first um, airworthy aircraft. We didn't actually have Tiger Moss during the Air Battle of Malta, but uh, we needed to uh, create an excuse for having a flying air- aircraft <laughs> in which we could give members and friends and f- flying experience in, a, in an open cockpit biplane. Um, obviously, our excuse is that most pilots that flew Spitfires and Hurricanes in the defense of Malta actually had their first flights and went solo in this type, in the, in the Tiger Moth. The only other episode that we had um, using Tiger Moths on Malta was uh, in, in the 1930s. We had Royal Navy uh, Queen Bees, that mm. were the radio-controlled ones. They used to be flown off Marsa Schlock for the fleet to shoot at. So that was the first instances <laughs> of having Tiger Moths on Malta. We later on had Royal Navy ones operating from Halfar. In fact, there was a particular one um, registered K-28. It was actually the aircraft that Royal Dull uh, went solo in when he was in, in, uh, in Africa. And they used to um, perform during air shows. And there's a picture on the Times of Malta of it uh, throwing um, flower bags on, on a car full of bandits in, in, this, in one of these air shows. Oh, it's, it's great. It's, it, I mean, so this is a flying model then, this, this one will actually yes. um, this fly. Um, we, we don't fly that often. It's a bit complicated. I mean, he, here, although the museum is based on an airfield, which, which was RAF Ta'ali, mm. Um, it's now become uh, a sort of park, a national park, but there's still 460 meters left of the runway, which we can use uh, after obtaining permission from different sources to uh, actually position the aircraft to Lua in the main airfield. So we are allowed to take off from here, operate from Lua, and then eventually bring it back using the reverse um, of when we flew it out. At least it keeps us. Um, mobile without having to we, we can fly from Lua without actually having to dismantle it and go through the process of reassembling it and this sort of thing I have to say the, the, the plane is so immaculately clean right it's so well it looks so well looked after well it's um, it's been a labor of love it's been done locally um, by David Polidano um, then the the wings were got sent to the UK to vintage fabrics they they uh, had the uh, wings fabric covered in, in the UK and then they were returned while the fuselage was done um, by Andrew Denny who actually came over from the UK to do the fabric covering uh, helped by, by David himself so uh, 
since it doesn't fly that often, it's it's in pristine condition. Have you flown in this aircraft yourself? Yes, a couple of times. It's fun. Oh wow! <laughs> Is, uh, that must be an amazing experience, an open cockpit um, aircraft like this. Yes, um, last time I flown was uh, a couple of months ago. We were flying over uh, Grand Harbour, which is a tremendous experience. Wow. And when, especially like you said, flying in an open cockpit. Um, the only thing was. I only, I always dreamt of flying in a Tiger Moth. Obviously, my dream meant going to fly in the UK. So I actually bought myself a leather jacket and this sort of thing. Because <laughs> 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 I was told it was going to be very cold flying in a Tiger Moth. But when I actually flew in it the first time, um, I didn't have time to get this flying jacket or anything. So I simply flew in my T-shirt. <laughs> it was, um, well, not cold, <laughs> being motor. No, you need you have such great weather here in, in Malta. Obviously, it's um, it, it must be so nice to fly, especially this aircraft in Malta with you know with the sun and you know and the, and the great visibility you must have. There's still some when I used to fly on microlights also when, on the weight shift ones and going over to Goto, for example, and changing heights. It'd be like when you're diving, you you find a sort of layer of very cold air, and then you climb a couple of hundred feet above and you come in hot air again and this sort of thing so yeah, even though it's on motor sometimes you <laughs> come across some, this this cold cold air and you'll end up uh, landing with a permanent grin on your face because you're frozen <laughs> <laughs> so can i ask you right have you got your have you got a pilot's license yourself no no i'm o- i only fly as a passenger mm. the only time i went solo was paragliding <laughs> oh, okay uh, uh, would you like to uh, to get your pilot's license would that be something you, you could, uh, you'd like to have um, most probably I'm busted now I'm 62 no you're not too old <laughs> never, they say they're never too old to learn to fly no no I mean I know pilots that are still flying at even 96 years of age wow uh, obviously with safety pilots but uh, I don't know I'm, at the moment I'm quite quite happy to just um, fly along as a passenger uh, I try to fly in, in most um, classic aircraft so um, whenever I go to the UK, I've, I've flown in the Dragon Rapid a couple of times, okay, yeah. this sort of thing. I've flown in DC-3s, DC-4s, DC-6s. Wow. And yeah, I keep, I keep a sort of log <laughs> of the, these... What you've been, yeah, what you've flown. On. Oh, that's brilliant. So move on to the next uh, next exhibition here, exhibit at this. Uh, this is fantastic. I don't think you can really grasp the size of these aircraft when um, when you see these flying when you see them on the ground, I think they seem a, a lot bigger in uh, up up close. Yes, yes that's the case. And in, in fact, um, I came across this experience when I was modelling. Used to have this uh, model of something or other occupying half the uh, dining room table, and then you go and fly it, and it's a dot in the sky like a fly. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, when they're inside the hangar, they they look bigger. Although we're looking at the Hurricane at the moment, so it is bigger. It, it's bigger than the Spitfire. It's bulkier. Um, this this particular one was actually uh, recovered from the seabed um, in 20 years ago, this last September, um, where it was on the seabed for 57 years. Oh, so what what kind of condition? When you pull these up from the sea, what kind of condition are these aircraft in when they've been down that long in the sea? The, um, they could be different. I mean, we've seen um, videos of, of aircraft on the seabed here in Malta, which are complete and uh, quite in very good condition. But um, this one, since the, the, the structure was actually um, wood, fabric, and just pipes, um, only, only the pipework survived. But there was enough to give you a basic kit of parts. So you have the, all the brackets and the carriage legs, 
uh, angel mounds, angel and stuff. They're, they were all there. All you need is to clean them up um, and, and then spray them up and, and this sort of thing and start building on this basic kit of parts. Well, as you can see, the hurricane, the, the back side of it, That's all wooden fabric, so obviously that's all disappeared with the ditching. Um, and you can see the photo here of what we actually recovered. Um, the tail section we recovered a bit um, two months before. But this is the engine, cows, um, cockpit seat, and all the pipes and stuff. But uh, essentially it was all there. So, so c could you find out which particular aircraft this was? This was Z3055. Okay. It actually came to Malta in June of 41, um, flown off the Ark Royal and flown by a pilot called Thomas Hexton. Um, it was part of 46 Squadron. Then it ditched in, uh, on the 4th of July of the same year, of 1941, where it stayed on the seabed for 57 years before it was recovered. Yeah, we, we were able to find the, its identification plate inside the cockpit, so that... Um, would give you the identity and then from records that we have we could trace um, basically it's, it's history also it's a very short history unlike the Spitfire. Oh wow so the engine itself I mean was the engine I mean obviously the engine is, is kind of um, past it when it's been on the seabed that long but could did you, did you still recover the engine as well? Oh yes it was part of the, of the recovery we have an engine now that actually works on, on the aircraft that we're restoring. Oh, wow. it, this is be basically being restored to taxiing condition, so it'll be um, um, functional, functionable um, in all aspects except for flying. I mean, that was um, our decision to, because we had to retain as much as possible of the original. Um, the aircraft uh, could only taxi. But at least you could hear the sound of the Merlin mm. engine, which is another Merlin engine, not the one recovered from the sea. I think we've used the reduction gear from the one recovered from the sea. But otherwise, um, it's, it's um, an engine that we recovered from, the, from a scrapyard, actually two engines, and out of two engines we made one in working condition. I've got to say, it's coming on, the, the actual restoration process has come along so well. Um, and we can see you're working on the wing here with the rivets uh, and bits and pieces, which are obviously your... The, the Clicos. Mm. Yeah. yeah, we just need to finish the leading edge and part of the trailing edge, um, construct the pair of aerolons, and we're basically there. Wow, it's the, the radiator's already in place and all the cooling system is in place. Uh, it, it, must, it must be an absolute, you know, passion that they've got that you guys must have to put these aircraft back together from how this aircraft was from the seabed yeah it's, it's always um, an effort to actually have aircraft that took part in the second world war exhibited for future generations to know what we had mm. uh, during wartime so uh, yeah yeah it's, um, it's, it's a labor of love but it's fun doing it finally <laughs> how many guys you got uh, working here then right helping you uh, put these aircraft back together not enough <laughs> <laughs> you need more yeah well it um the mostly the all the volunteers are led by david he's he's the um, um aircraft restorer um, actually employed by the museum but uh, whenever we need something special like if we need some work done on the lathe then we got a guy a volunteer who's um, an expert on this sort of stuff so he comes along to give us a hand um, 
like uh, spraying and stuff. We usually get Clive Denny over from the UK on a busman's holiday. <laughs> <laughs> He'll spend some time spraying and uh, and this sort of thing. And then once he's done, then you go to the seaside. <laughs> oh, that sounds grass. Sounds like the kind of holiday I'd like. Yeah. Uh, to come come from the UK and give it in and help here. I think I'll give up my job in the UK and come <laughs> and help you. So moving around then, looking around here, you've got um, obviously not just the aviation um, static displays here, you've, you've got uh, some uh, road displays from the, from the air, airfields and stuff. Uh, this standing here in front of us here. Uh, this is a, a QL tanker, um, which in, in the UK were used for, um, even during the Battle of Britain to uh, refuel Spitfires and Hurricanes. On Malta we didn't have that luxury. Most, uh, if we did have any tankers... Um, they would have been an, an ideal target for the enemy, so they would have been blown up pretty quick. Um, I've seen pictures of, we had like a sort of double-decker, and they had a, like a tank on the top floor, and they used to refuel um, by gravity. gravity yeah. um, there was also like a, a towed um, bowser thing. Um, again, that must have been uh, shot up <laughs> quite soon. Um, usually they used um, just the, the tins of fuel that used to be delivered by the convoys. And we had two types. There were, one of them was called a flimsy, which, were, as the name implies, it was a tin can, even thinner than a tin of milk. And then there were the um, more um, stronger ones, um, but they could only be used once. They used to get punctured, the uh, two holes in the top, pull the fuel out and then get thrown away. Um, on Malta and North Africa, they used them. They used to open up the tops, uh, fill them with earth, and construct um, pens, like an open-air garage, to protect the aircraft from bomb blasts and stuff like that. Uh, it was only later on, when the um, fighting in North Africa, the uh, Allies discovered the uh, German invention, the, the jerrycan, <laughs> which was eventually copied. Uh, we got an example of a jerrycan dated 1941, of the German one. And then uh, the British one dated 1943. So that's when um, the, uh, in the UK they started building these these uh, replica jerry cans, which are still being produced nowadays. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was an so. ideal. It's, a, it's a amazing what a, a sort of small invention does to the war effort. Like Churchill actually claimed that uh, the the Willys jeep was a a sort of um, big contributor to the winning of the Second World War. And, and other stuff like that. Oh wow, that's that's that's, a, that's amazing. The stories and stuff that you must have, Ray, yourself, from what you've heard over the years. I'll just say, over, over in the back of the hangar here, there's uh, this is a work in progress uh, aircraft. What's this, Ray? Not really a work in progress. It's um, this is a swordfish. Ah, um, okay. And um, although we didn't plan to actually acquire a swordfish, we uh, we were offered it by a guy from Canada, and. Uh, we sort of said, yeah, okay, and and we bought it and brought it over, but it still has to wait its turn for um, restoration. But swordfishes were very important for the history of uh, the Second World War here on Malta. Obviously, in the UK, they're mostly uh, famous for the attack on the Bismarck and on the Channel, Channel Dash, but uh, in the Mediterranean, the first um, notable uh, operation was done by 24 swordfishes of illustrious that attacked the Italian fleet in Taranto. So it, um, this attack damaged an, a number and, and, and sank a number of ships um, of the Italian Navy, which um, rendered them um, unserviceable. And the, the ones that weren't damaged, they, they moved to uh, um, bases further up north in Italy. So it, it created a safer space in the Mediterranean for the 
British fleet and convoys to operate to Malta. Um, then another thing, we had A three O squadron that uh, were based here in Malta for three years, and uh, in these three years, they sunk about fifty thousand tons of shipping per month. So there was a continuous action going on, and it was why Malta was important in the Second World War because of the fighting in North Africa. Um, Rommel needed all his supplies that uh, to conduct the war in North Africa, but this, these had to reach him from Italy. And um, the uh, effort from Malta that uh, sunk as many of these ships as possible meant that um, Rommel didn't have the supplies that he needed, um, f- like in the final battle of Al Alamein, which um, was the first victory for the Allies before then the Germans were pushed out of Africa. So the Swordfish was one of these aircraft. Uh, they used to do... Uh, operations about um, eight hours long, go down to Nizian coast, um, look, looking for these convoys and trying to sink them. Um, the, sometimes they used to carry just two, pa- two uh, the pilot and the observer, and an extra fuel tank in the middle to, to be able to have uh, a longer range. Ah, another episode um, regarding a swordfish from Malta was uh, actually in '43 before the invasion of Sicily, the Americans were bombing uh, Sicily, Pantelleri and Lampedusa. And uh, there was a swordfish looking for a down German crew. Something went wrong with the compass. So they decided to land on Lampedusa. And when they landed, um, almost out of fuel, they were told, go back and tell them we surrendered. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the only episode in the Second World War when an aircraft actually invaded an island. <laughs> and, and the pilots flying it, a guy called Cohen, became known as the King of Lampedusa. Oh, wow. What a, <laughs> that's a fantastic story, Ray. No, it's, it's it's amazing to see. I mean, even in this condition it's in now, it's still you know great to see the swordfish here. Um, obviously, you've got there's a lot of work to be done with this aircraft. Is it is it easy to source part when you're trying to find parts and pieces for the aircraft? Is it easy to find these bits? Not really, I mean, even the Royal Navy are finding it hard, like say engine wise, to to find spare parts for engines. The the Pegasus they're obviously getting rarer and rarer. Um, some other pieces, because we didn't actually start assessing what we have to start restoration, um, but we think that we have parts of the uh, elevators and, and stabilizers missing, because this aircraft spent a lot of time out in the open in Canada, so each season it used to have its fair amount of um, snow falling on it, and and um, obviously being made out of pipes, the water would um, seep inside the pipes and rust them off. And as you can see, the, the back end has actually fallen off because of the rust. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, like this um, pipework, you could uh, basically replace and start. Um, we have to, first of all, disassemble the fuselage to start off with and then start reassembling it bit by bit until we have the fuselage on its undercarriage. Then we have to sort out the um, and tackle the problem of the wings, engine, and other bar- parts. But at least you'll have the, the fuselage on its undercarriage much better than it's um, at the moment. It looks great, Ryan. I, you know, I, I hope that um, you know you have you have the help and everything you need to put this aircraft sort of back together into into display condition, which I'm sure you will. Well, the only thing uh, keeping us back at the moment is that originally um, our main object was to get the Gladiator. Um, from the war museum and have it restored back to the, the way it was say the same standard as the hurricane unfortunately th- that didn't happen so at the moment we're looking for another one which is on the seabed that uh, it's been sort of um, 
eluding us for a number of years. We haven't found it yet. But um, if we do find it, then we, we hope to be given permission to retrieve it and start its restoration. We actually got um, wings over there that we acquired from the RAF um, Reserve Collection, the RAF Museum's Reserve Collection, and some of the pieces from Finland. So we actually have the whole wing assembly, obviously in need of restoration, mm. but um, it's amazing how complicated they used to make these aircraft. <laughs> the uh, um, ribs themselves, the sort of aluminium sections, uh, if you try getting somebody to do them nowadays, they send you packing. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of patience you need. Yes. So we'll move on then to the next hangar then, then. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. The Plain Talking UK podcast is a voluntary project that aims to keep you informed with the latest aviation-related stories from newswires across the globe. Producing our content does cost money, though. If you enjoy our show, why not help us keep on the air by making a donation towards the server and website hosting fees through PayPal. Any contributions would be greatly appreciated. Are you an Amazon user? If so, why not do your shopping through the link on our website? There's no cost to yourself, and Amazon pay us a small referral fee on qualifying purchases. To find out more about the show and to meet the team, take yourself to our website website www.plaintalkinguk.com or find us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash uk on twitter via at uk or get in touch via email on podcast at plaintalkinguk.com thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening. hello this is jenny in rome with the background music of Andrea Bocelli singing one of Italy's favourite Christmas carols. And I'd like to wish Carlos and Matt and all the contributors to the Plain Talking UK podcast a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and, of course, a great 2016. Bye. Hello, Carlos and Matt and all the Plain Talking UK listeners. It's Matt Fabricius here. Just wanted to say Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to all the listeners. Thanks so much for the podcast of the last year and hope it carries on and keeps growing into the new year. It's fantastic, so thanks guys for the time you put into that. Carlos, I'm expecting you to get your PPL next year, so come on, knuckle down, get some hard work done and we'll go flying together. I look forward to meeting you guys as soon as the weather gets nice when I fly down there. Um, and that's it. Toodaloo. Hey Carlos, Matt and the... Plain Talking UK podcast community out there. It's Ray Davis from Down Under. Just wishing everyone a very Merry Christmas and a happy and safe New Year. And looking forward to 2016 for a bigger and brighter year. Also looking forward to more podcasts from the dynamic duo that is Carlos and Matt, as well as talking to the rest of the community out there in the live chat room. So until then, stay safe, be happy, and catch you on the flip side.
standing next to another iconic aircraft. What's this one, Ray? This is the Vampire. It's, um, it's a T-11, a two-seat version. Um, this was the first type of jet that we had on, on Malta. Um, in fact, we Maltese used to know it as the whistle because of the different engine sound. Uh, so they used to whistle along instead of the usual reciprocating engine noise with the propeller. Um, this is uh, an aircraft that was goes back to the time when the Havilland used to build a Mosquito. So it's, it's got a wooden fuselage. Uh, the rest of it is uh, aluminium. I suppose um, the Havilland um, could not retrain their, their carpenters uh, in such a hurry. So they returned what was a sort of um, what was proven design and um, they kept doing at least a fuselage pod. Uh, the, the strange shape of this aircraft, the, having the twin boom, is because um, the jet engines at that time, like the Derwent and in this, in this case, uh, the jets actually produced by the Havilland themselves, not by Rolls-Royce, weren't so powerful, so they needed the intake and the outlet to be as short as possible. So um, this designer from the Havilland came out with the solution of having twin boom instead. That's something I didn't know, Ray. Yes, um, the um, Seahawk that we're going to visit, um, the designer, the Sydney Cam, um, came out with a different solution. Um, you can still see the short intake and, and outlet, but in his case, he did two outlets instead of just one. So again, he kept it as short as possible. So on the back here, Ray, you've got Royal Navy markings on, this, um, on the Vampire. How did you come across this aircraft? Well, this came from Booker, from the UK. Um, it was donated by the air show organizers at that um, roundabout. Let me see the. Um, this should be the. Um, in 2001. Um, but it's actually, although this is a T 11, it's representing a T 22 used by the Royal Navy here on Halfar, and the um, uh, airfield on the south side of the island. In fact, it's got HF on its tail. And uh, we painted it to represent the Royal Navy colours used then up to 1983. This was a gunnery trainer, basically. It, um, not, uh, it used to have four 20 millimeters, and they they used it um, to, you know, learn the art of um, air firing, air-to-air firing. And this aircraft even had the ejection seat, right? Yes, in this case. Um, m- most of them were converted. They they used to have the old uh, mosquito canopy. Then they, they got them converted in Cambridge at, uh, uh, I've quite forgotten the name of the company there, but it's the same company that's um, um, had a lot with um, the, the Balkan um, to the air in the UK. Mm. Um, it'll come eventually. <laughs> just just while, while we're walking to the next aircraft, right, obviously you've heard in the UK that uh, the Vulcan is on its last yes. tour yes. Of the UK, what what uh, what are your feelings on the on the Vulcan being took away or, or brought uh, brought away from the uh, flying? Well, it's certainly going to be missed because it, it was quite a grout puller. Unfortunately, the complexities of the aircraft um, have proven, I suppose, very expensive. And even more unfortunate is that the RAF can't really um, afford to to keep it under um, um, joining the Battle of Britain Memorial flight, for example. It's, it's far too expensive and complex. It's a shame, yeah. I was lucky to see that this year, right, the last um, 
the last uh, one of the last shows it done at Riyadh at the Royal okay. International Air Tattoo. Have you met, have you seen the uh, Vulcan flying right? No, no, I haven't. Um, last air show I've been to was um, uh, Legends at Duxford when okay. it didn't take part then. Yeah, there's still quite a number of aircraft I've missed, either due to non-appearance and being out of uh, service at the moment, like Swordfish, for example. I've been, uh, I don't know how many times, to different air shows and always miss the Swordfish. <laughs> Do you know, Ray, there is talk in the UK at the moment that uh, there's a group of people who are going to hopefully get uh, one of the uh, last airworthy Concords flying again. Have you heard that? Wow, that would be something. Yeah, it, apparently it's, uh, it's, it's one of the news stories we've covered on our show. And uh, apparently a, a group of people have got enough money, well, nearly enough money to get one of the last Concords flight and airworthy again. Well, I suppose the, the main problem is... Um, the reason why Concorde was retired was that uh, it uh, didn't receive any support from the um, parent company. Mm. Um, as you know, all the aircraft that fly have got to be supported by their respective company. Like even the Tiger Mot, and there's the, the, the uh, Mot Club, which actually take, uh, takes care of all the modifications. If, if say, there's a um, defect found in the Tiger Mot, then the Mot Club would in turn advise all the other motor owners, listen, you've got to change this and or modify that and to keep them flying. Now, if it doesn't happen on, on an aircraft, then you'll be flying an aircraft which could be potentially a bit dangerous because a defect was found in some other country and you don't get to know of it. Mm. So with the Concorde, that was, the, I think, uh, Air France um, or the, the on the French side, they didn't want to sort of keep on guaranteeing this this sort of support i think even on the um, vulcan and the same thing happened mm. so on to uh, one of the next exhibits here then ray what's uh, what's this aircraft here well this is the seahawk um it was one of the first um, royal navy um carrier-borne fighters we they had the attacker before that but it wasn't such a success um but the the seahawk was was again um the brainchild of sydney cam same designer as the hurricane in fact you can see the outline of the fin and, and rudder is basically the same as the hurricane. That was like a sort mm. of signature of the designer. Um, in this case, the, this uh, exhibit here is representing the Suez Crisis, which up to the um, um, war in, in, in Libya when they got rid of Gaddafi was the last time there was Malta was involved in a war the, in '57, and in fact it's um, represented by those um, yellow and black stripes. This were used for the Suez Crisis. Um, they copied the, the norm in the black and white um, stripes. And this used to belong to 804 Squadron. All right. Which we have pictures of uh, actually based here on Ta'ali, which was also at one time um, named HMS Goldfinch, that was used by the Royal Navy. So one of the most striking features of this aircraft, Ray, obviously the listeners will be able to see, is the folding wings, which obviously was for help on uh, being on board ship. Yeah, that's normal for um, most Royal Navy uh, aircraft. I say most because like the, the one we just um, came across, the, the Vampire didn't have any folding wings. It was only introduced later on the uh, Sea Venom, for example. They, they started having folding wings. But obviously the folding wings were uh, much needed um, gadget sort of to be able to pack more aircraft on on the fly deck and also to be able to get them down into the hangar deck 
So this aircraft, how did uh, the museum come across this one? Was this donation, uh, donated? This was donated by Midland Bank before they became HSBC. Oh. It was the transitional stage when we had a branch of Midland Bank based on Slema, and our secretary managed to convince them to sort of um, donate money for the purchase of this aircraft. This was originally in, in Wales, um, at uh, a museum that closed down in Wales, and, and we bought it from the uh, eventual buyers of the aircraft. And it was quite easy to get to Monta, just take the wings off, put it on the trailer. So That's fantastic, right. And the engines in this one, they've been, they've been removed? No, no, it's still got the engines. still got the engines. But it'll, um, uh, it's not in working condition. Even the Vampire's got the engine on. But again, um, although the engine on the Vampire will actually turn sometimes uh, using a battery. Wow, wow. So, because these aircraft do look, Ray, they do, do look, they do look as if they are ready to fly. You know, the work you've done here to obviously preserve these aircraft is fantastic. Uh, th- yeah, this is the uh, the type of restoration that I've mentioned before, the uh, um, static. So, the, so on the outside, um, they look, um, they depart as the aircraft that, that were being used at that time, but um, inside there's nothing that works, and this sort of thing. Okay, moving round this, let's have a look here. So some of the uh, some of the other exhibits here, the sort of displays you've got on here, one of uh, ejection seats yeah, here. This is one of the early ones. Uh, this was used on a Valiant um, tanker. It was scrapped at Khalfar way back in the 80s, and we have eventually acquired it. But um, the ejector seats kept being improved every day with each type of aircraft they're, they're used on. So this was rather a basic one. Um, it, it had to be sort of, uh, you had to have a certain amount of speed and height to be able to uh, use it um, safely. Um, then when they introduced the Harrier, for example, since most of the incidents that happened was when the aircraft was hovering a few feet off the ground, then the ejector seats had to be uh, improved enough to be able to um, throw the pilot out of an aircraft which is stationary and almost on the ground. Um, that's the the way they, uh, Martin Baker always improved their, their product. And another donated part to the uh, museum? Um, yeah, we acquired it sort of. Um, mm. Yeah. In most museums in the UK, this first one I've seen, there's one at Chatterwood, they've got, they've got one uh, also at Duxford, before they relocated all this stuff in the big hangar. It used to be underneath the stairs before you go up on the those balcony. So this is a trainer then we're standing next to here, one of the first, real first kind of uh, trainers that pilots use, right? Yes, this is the uh, Link um, trainer. It was designed by a guy called Edward Link. Um, he simply wanted to learn how to fly and couldn't afford it. So borrowing stuff from his father's factory, he, uh, he built a, a toy that he could play around um, simulating flight. In fact, his father used to build organs for churches, so the principle works on you've got four bellows underneath where that black uh, thing is, and these bellows would uh, inflate or deflate according to the amount of air that's pumped into them, and it would move the aircraft as it's, um, you know, it could bank right or left or pitch up and down, and this sort of thing. It could do anything except loop. Um, the purpose, though, on, on these link trainers was different from the simulators we know nowadays. 
Um, this was obviously you no know, computers and, and stuff. And it was at the time in the 1930s when new things were being introduced in flying. Before, the, the pilots used to fly by the seat of their pants, VFR and this sort of thing. This um, gadget was intended to teach them to trust their instruments. In fact, they used to be shut in the dark with, with that canopy. So you can see it's painted black on the inside. All they could see was the instruments, which is basically the same instruments as on the, uh, the, the aircraft that they would eventually fly on or would have already be flying on. And they would have to, say, do um, like a circuit of the airfield. At the same time, they would be um, sort of flying this, this uh, link train, and the instructor sitting on that desk over there would see that triangular thing, which was called the crab, and that would be moving and drawing with a red ink um, the movements of the of the trainer. So if he was supposed to be doing a rectangular circuit of the airfield, that thing would be drawing a rectangular shape. If he got lost or is not um, controlling properly, it would be going all over the place. Uh, another thing this thing was meant to, to teach the pilots was the, the um, introduction of the new things that were being introduced in the 1930s, retractable undercarriage and flaps. So this ha used to have um, light bulbs like that one over there, and they used to have a couple of light bulbs on the canopy, which would indicate to the instructor whether he, the uh, student remembered to lower his undercarriage or um, lower his flaps and this sort of thing. So those were the, the things that this thing actually taught the, the student. The um, instructor also had those two um, handles over there. He, he could also increase or decrease the amount of um, side wind, so he could give him a crosswind and upset a bit of the, the control. So the pilot would also learn how to control uh, coming in for a landing in a crosswind and, and this sort of thing. So it was... So as, as basic as it looks, it is quite... Um there's quite a lot of yes, parts to it. Yes, um, well, it's not exactly like the new simulators that's fully computerized and, and you could simulate any sort of engine now and stuff like that. But, but still, it was the start of, of the concept that we know nowadays, and built by the same guy that nowadays um, Link has got um, these modern um, flight simulators. And this used to be um, found in most bases in the UK, and we had one here on Ta'ali in a similar building, which has got that sort of um, typical multi-stone thing. Um, it's down the road from here near Tori Kumbo. So the, the building is actually still survives, uh, except for the inside. The inside now is presented here in the museum. Wow, that's brilliant. So did you, uh, you got donated this, um, this particular exhibit? Yes, uh, it was donated by uh, a German couple, um, Junker. Um, this was previously in a museum in Cologne, which closed down, and they said, if you'd like to have it, you can just send for it, and that's what we did. Wow, that's brilliant. With all everything else that comes with it, because there's a lot, uh, we can see a lot of bits and pieces that come with the whole simulator itself. Yeah, it's actually it's in, in working condition, so once in a while we start it up, and try, try our luck at that sort of um, controlling. So you've had a go in there yourself, right? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> And is it easy? No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have to, if you're used like myself with um, VFR flying, going totally blind and trying to um, regulate the, the flying speed and then trust the artificial horizon to make a turn without actually diving into the ground, it's not easy. Wow. 
like this was called the sweat box by the students. As I would say actually, because there's no, uh, there's not a lot of uh, ventilation really in there. There's only a, a fan underneath, and also obviously the um, fellow students would be watching this thing going up and down and blubbing around, and obviously laughing their heads off. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to pictures of that and put it on, uh, put it on the site so uh, so listeners can see. Um, all, all about this because it is, it is a, a very good bit of kit there, right? I think, and, and it obviously worked very well for training pilots in in learning how to uh, to fly. Well, if you have a look at uh, logbooks that um, Second World War pilots used to have, uh, at the back of the logbook there is the amount of hours that they had to do on the link trainer. So ever so often they would have to go and do a couple of hours on, on the link trainer to sort of teach them or get them current on some stuff. Wow bit different to what we have to learn in now i think so in that in the other part of the hangar here right we've got um a couple of helicopters here are these uh, in progress well these aren't actually ours they're, they're we're keeping them for a guy um, he's completely rotary wing mad and he bought these two six helicopters um, ex-british army um on the he's, he's hoping to be able to um, assemble one of them complete He's actually uh, purchased two and a half of, of these, so choosing the right one and, uh, and putting it together would eventually give him a full helicopter. Um, but this is this is the area of our sort of dirty area where we do most of the um, engineering work. Although sometimes we are compelled, like on the Texan, for example, we can't actually get the Texan in here, so we work on it on site in, in the other hangar. But whenever we need to like we started the hurricane project in in this section here when it was still just um, bare pipes and then we still had to fabric cover it so most of the work is done as well as um, uh, spray painting so we just lower the shutter and this would make the, the area um, sealed against um, you know, the, the usual smell um, spraying smells and stuff so, so you've got a wing there in progress right on, on the bench there yeah, that's a microlight wing um, that's that's one project. We've got um, several other wings being constructed in the proper carpentry shop. Uh, and then we're polishing up those propellers from from an 1830. We're even doing up a telephone box. <laughs> <laughs> a British telephone box yeah. in the corner of the uh, workshop. King George V telephone box. Uh, it's quite old. And uh, once ready, it's going to be um, placed next to the cafeteria. So we'll give a nice background sort of the telephone oh, very good very good it, it needs restoration as everything else <laughs> and sometimes it's not as easy as we think um, it's it's been done the wrong way around there's se several um, methods you could you could do I mean um, normally you, you go through the, the door and then in front of you you'll find the telephone and this one the telephone would be attached to the right hand side so we have to dismantle it and reassemble it as we wanted with the telephone mm. in front. Now the uh, screws that hold the thing together, although in theory they're supposed to go out and you know change and whatever, um, <laughs> are a bit um, re refusing to sort of <laughs> unscrew themselves. <laughs> but I'm sure it'll look good when it's finished, right? Yes, yes. It'll um, make a nice, a nice accompaniment yeah. to the to the museum. Perhaps you should put some wings on it. Ah, you need very big wings because it's very heavy. It's cast iron. <laughs> so another part of the uh, museum you've got, right, apart from the uh, static aircraft and stuff, we've got um, 
like a headquarters building here, 203 Squadron building. In here you've got some models. Yes, this is the um, model room area. Um, part of the foundation, um, we've got a group called the Society of Scan Modelers. They do fantastic models, take part in competitions, um, especially in the UK, and cut off a number of prizes. Um, in it, although we don't have um, just Maltese-related models, obviously they would do models that uh, most probably would mean um, them winning prizes. But there is, like the first one we can see is very important because it's representing Calafrana, the, the uh, first seaplane base that we had on Malta. Um, all the flying on Malta from 1915 onwards till the building in, in the 20s of Halfar was done from the sea. So we had uh, flying boats, um, float planes or amphibians. And this was the base Calafrana where these uh, aircraft used to operate from. That's a great model, ever so detailed as well, Ray. This um, must have been, took someone a long while to put together this model. Yeah, this, this has been um, inspired by a, a photo of Calafrana in the same period. Uh, as you can see, they've got um, the Marines, so you've got soldiers, Marines. Um, it was a base that was used by both Royal Navy, Royal Air Force, and Marines. So this diorama shows these intermix of the three services here on Malta. And you've also, above that, Ra, just noticed you've got uh, one of the uh, Hawker Siddeley Vulcans. Yes, this is a cross-section of the letter type. Um, well, we start off with, with the Shackleton, Shackleton. Mm. Uh, and then the, the Canberras and the Hunters and the Buccaneers and the Seahawk. So that's the, the more, um, well, not recent. That we, the aircraft that we used to see up to 1979 when the British forces left the island. The, the top shelf shows the Italian aircraft that we used to see um, in the skies above us uh, during the Second World War. So there's a good cross-section of the SM-79s, the um, Fiat um, CR-42, the, the Mach 200 and the 202. So it's a good cross-section built by Richard Caruana. So the, the paint, not just the building, but the paintwork as well on these models is really good. Um, it's not just that. It's also if you have a look at the Gladiator over here, the 5.9, that's a totally scratch-built. So that's not done from a kit. The, the guy that done it um, started from scratch and uses all sorts of stuff that he finds and build the actual model. So it's, uh, it's just more than actually assembling it and, and, and spray painting it. The others are, most of them are sort of heavily modified, like you have um, the, the bow fighter from 272 Squadron, you've got the engine exposed. And, and usually they had some others that are not displayed over here, but are really uh, comprehensive. They, they take off all the cows and they do a diorama as if it's being worked on and this sort of thing. But uh, this is a bow fighter from 272, um, used for anti-shipping. And the other one is the um, Mosquito from 23 Squadron. That was the first Mosquitoes to operate outside the UK. They came prior to the invasion of Sicily. And the other one, the B-24, that was um, uh, an American-operated one from um, Libya. But as you can see, um, it's, it's got British print flashes because uh, they, they wanted to sort of make sure they don't get shot at by the mistake. Some interesting color schemes come from that period. We had Spitfires because the Americans were operating Spitfires 
um, as soon as they entered the war in North Africa, some having the American star on one side and the British rounded on the other side, um, fin flashes, and some of them even carried a huge American flag painted on the side of the fuselage to make sure they're properly, uh, properly identified. Now these are fantastic models, right, I have to say. Now this is the area related to the air sea rescue um, thing that we had on, on, on the island during the Second World War. These are two launches that were used for air sea rescue, and the um, um, list behind them is is the list of all the aircrew that were um, uh, picked up by the by these air rescue launches. Starting off from the very first one, which was when the Gladiator Pi 519 was shut down in 1940, and the pilot Peter Hartley was rescued. And right right down to when we started having um, like liberators teaching in the sea near Malta um, when they were attacking targets in um, uh, Europe. So some of them operated from Libya, even taking part in the Polesti um, raid. There's quite a lot of different aircraft there, right, which were shot down and recovered by these boats. I mean, you, you can see like this, the Spitfires, uh, Wellington's Swordfish, and the Boer Fighter, and even there's even some uh, BF-109s. Yeah, 109s, and, and going right down, that was uh, 1943, would be the, the um, bit where the invasion of Sicily was taken on, ta taking place. So 1943 was quite busy, because there was a lot of um, toing and proing to Sicily, a lot of aircraft being damaged and tried to make it back to Malta, and they wouldn't, so they would ditch nearer to the island and um, try to be picked up by the... Uh, Mercy rescue launches. As you can see, there's very few German uh, it's, uh, two Henkel 111s in uh, June of 43. Um, there's just one 109. And the rest, we started having like Warhawks. Um, we, we had number three squadron, Royal Australian Air Force, and uh, 450 operating from Malta for just a couple of days before they actually um, went over to Sicily. The others, are 1942, they're all related to the um, Air Battle of Malta. So the last blitz was October 1942, as you can see. A mix of Spitfires mostly, um, 109s, JU-88s, Maki 202s, a lot of JU-88s. A lot of aircraft that uh, probably ended up at the bottom of the sea. Yeah, yeah, they're all ended up mm. in the sea. Those, um, those were the, the guys that were blobbing around in the Mediterranean, hoping for a rescue, and they were very happy to see the um, high speed. It, it just goes to show, though, right, that the amount of aircraft that are probably still in the sea now, um, yeah, around yeah. around the islands of Malta here, which are still yet to be found. Exactly. Yeah, but um, most of these would be in very deep waters, mm. and um, you could. Well, the ones that are actually um, nearer to the island, most of them have, have been found already. And like the 109 so far, we've never been able to find a reasonable shaped one. Um, usually they're the ones that the pilot just parachuted down from them and, and just terminal dive into the sea and obviously <laughs> mm. breaking up in pieces. It's most likely the um, um, Spitfires and Hurricanes would try to ditch nearer to the island. Um, be, be saved. The others, the Germans and the Italians, would try to make it back to Sicily. So, most be of a deep war. 
deep water and mm. obviously nearer to Sicily than to Malta mm. if they didn't make it back to Sicily. Wow. A lot of history in Malta, right? There's yes, definitely a lot yes. of history right on this island. Well, it was a battle, the Air Battle of Malta. Mm. Um, obviously started in June of 1940 and uh, you could say it ended on the 8th of September '43, with the um, capitulation of Italy. And then, as you can see, we had a, a little bit of movement in '44, but that was most probably aircraft. Like that's a very um, that's an 88 actually, um, in in late '43. Uh, that's then there's two two rescues in '44, but they were Spitfires most probably coming back either for um, maintenance on more and then their engine drunken out or something. <laughs> so. There wasn't any fighting. We were uh, basically out of the war in September of '43. Great. So, well, well we bring the uh, bring the walk round tour of the uh, museum to a close, Ray. That's uh, it's been it's been fantastic to speak to you today, Ray. Your 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 history and and uh, the, the, what you know is just amazing. And uh, I'm I'm going to listen to this back myself, and uh, I'm sure the listeners will enjoy the show. What's uh, a bit of background about yourself though, Ray. How did, um, how's your sort of passion for aviation start? I suppose it's my father's fault. Um, he was in the RAF, joined in 1939. I worked at Luta during the war. It was a civilian fitter, mostly on Blemins and Wellingtons. Um, and then post-war he was based on Safi, the maintenance unit. And he used to take me to work with him when, when I was big enough. Like say from six years onwards. Um, he used to let me loose in the hangar with the instructions not to touch anything <laughs> and uh, I'll be okay so obviously I got the aircraft bug um, that, that early in, in, in my life then um, in, uh, during the one of the rundowns in 69 he joined Miyako which was an American company doing DC-3s and I used to go and visit as often as I can and also started flying uh, with them sometimes on, on air tests and stuff so again um, the bug really um, grew um, I worked with Miyako for a couple of years um, on engines, but then uh, they had some industrial trouble, and I was the last one to join, so the first one to leave, and uh, eventually joined the bank, which was ideal because I only worked till one o'clock. So from um, say one thirty quarter to two onwards, after I eaten and, and maybe had a short rest, I was able to do uh, first radio control um, modeling. And then eventually got involved in this museum right from the very start in uh, 1993. Wow. And the museum is purely dona uh, funded by donations from the public? Yes, apart from the entrance money. Mm. Um, that usually helps pay the, the usual bills. But when we're doing um, a project like, say, the Tiger Mod for flying, um, we relied on uh, um, people donating. Some people would donate a certain amount of money to buy the bracing wires, for example, another one would pay for the fabric covering, and that's that sort of thing. Even like this uh, swordfish was again a big donation by two guys, and um, although it was really expensive at that time, it was thirteen thousand Maltese, um, just just to buy the the, uh, the state it is it now. Um, we managed to buy to pay for it complete, so in no time at all. Wow. What's the future hold for the museum, Ray? What uh, what big plans? Have you got any big plans for the museum? Um, well, one thing is to set foot on uh, a small hangar at Lua so that we can 
um, whenever we like to fly an aircraft, we can actually fly it from the runway, like I said before, but be able to base it in a hangar at Lua, so we wouldn't have the headache of um, leaving an aircraft outside or else having to pay for a lot for, for hangarage. Um, and obviously having this, like the Tiger Motor or the, uh, later on the uh, Piper Cub, uh, flying regularly, so we could instill some some of this vintage flying in the in the locals and hopefully have some at the air shows would be nice right yes yes um like last year we although we didn't take part in the air show we, we took part in the indina grand prix with the tiger mod done um, two displays over the weekend that'd be good <coughs> excellent right so, well, thank you ever so much for uh, your tour around the museum today. Just for the, for the listeners of the show, how can they find out more information about the, uh, the Aviation Museum here in Malta? Well, just visit our website, www.maltaaviationmuseum.com, and there's the usual information on it. So that was the first uh, instalment then from the Malta Aviation Museum, interviews that I took with Ray Polidano, and uh, that was a fantastic uh, first sort of first segment mm. I had there around, uh, around the hangars. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Like I said, uh, for those of you who want to find out more, if you go to www.maltaaviationmuseum.com, oh, wow. yep. um, you'll see there's a, they've got a brilliant website with loads of information and photos of what you can see in there. Mm. And um, one of the aircraft I've actually got in the museum is a, is a DC-3, a Dakota, actually okay. full cool. site, you know, proper actual aircraft. It's, it's fantastic. It really wow. is. So yeah, go on there and uh, and have a look. And uh, for those of you who are going over to Malta next mm. year, go and visit the museum for definitely. Well, you can get yeah, in touch absolutely. with the show in the usual ways. It is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com is the web is the email address. Uh, website is www.plaintalkinguk.com uh, and it is facebook.com forward slash plaintalkinguk. Our Twitter handle is at plaintalking. UK. So we hope you've all had an absolutely fantastic Christmas. Mm, definitely. Um, I, I shall no doubt be very full of uh, beef Wellington, and you'll be full of turkey and goodness knows what else. Yeah, I dare I'll say. be full of um, the Maltese or uh, sweets out of the um, right. the what was it the heroes <laughs> of chocolates. Oh, right, okay, yeah, because yeah. yeah. everyone or everyone always takes those first, so I'll be getting to those first. Right. Okay. Mm. Right. <laughs> That's what I like. You're a real team player, aren't you, Carl? I, know, I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. So for me, Carlos, then it is a very very festive and uh, jingle bells uh, <laughs> goodbye from everyone here in the studio which is just me and Matt yeah, indeed absolutely and from Matt as I say I hope you're all very drunk and that you've eaten everything you want and of course you've got all the presents you wanted for Christmas yes yes socks and pants and everything <laughs> absolutely from all of us here in the studio it is a very festive goodbye goodbye <laughs>